This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and one of my favorite, favorite guys on the planet is with us today. And if you are hungry, put us on pause, go grab a snack, because Eric Kim is the author of Korean American, a cookbook that you need now. And the subtitle is Food That Tastes Like Home. So Eric, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself to listeners because this is your debut. This is my debut. Hello, everyone. My name is Eric Kim. I'm a food writer. I currently write on the food desk at the New York Times as a staff writer. And yeah, I read a book about my family and now all these people know my family's names and maybe even their faces are just kind of wild and bizarre. But and now I'm here talking to this wonderful woman who I met at a party once. <laughs> <laughs> and then we got to cook together. That spreadsheet that we used, what, it was 14 pages or something? It was, how many dishes did we make? That second time we were hanging out and we were cooking, we borrowed a friend's kitchen because you and I both have tiny New York kitchens. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was wild. We, we made 11 to 12 dishes, potentially right. more. You were so helpful with like all the chopping and I felt like an executive chef or something with like <laughs> chefs. That was really fun. Um, that was fun. It was great, but also I like taking the time to step back and do the knife work. And really, I find it very meditative when you're chopping vegetables and just sort of zoning out and doing that. And then you get a very good thing at the end. And actually, I made egg salad based on your deviled egg recipe oh, yeah. for dinner last <laughs> night. Because <laughs> I was like, you know what, I, I don't really feel like making everything look pretty and taking up space, but I want the flavor. And this is something that I love about Korean American the cookbook because you can just play with everything. I mean, I have such a tiny kitchen. I don't cook a lot of meat at home in New York because I don't need my sweaters to smell like pork chops. Or your pillow. Right. And I mean, this is the reality of why we live here. We don't spend a lot of time at home. But there are a couple of things I learned from the book. And one is the sonmat, which is what you call hand taste. I guess it translates to hand taste. And it's not something I ever thought about. But I think it's really important before we set up this conversation that we're going to have about this beautiful cookbook. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, sonma translates to hand taste. And it's sort of this food word in Korean that refers to someone's signature touch. You can have a recipe and, you know, do it perfectly. But if it's not made with that person's hands, it probably won't be the same. I love that notion because I think it describes a style of cooking that The book is sort of trying to teach, which is the way my mom cooks, which is without measurements. It's with instincts, someone who can season food perfectly. And I I take a lot of pride in in having some sonmat, I think, in my food. Um, I I think my way of sharing it with people is a little different. It's like Mm -hmm. through a recipe, but I take a lot of pride in food that people take a bite of and their first reaction is kind of like, whoa, I like surprising people. And I think that's what that's what um. My mom does as well with her food. And one of the things I really appreciate about the work that you do too is, and I'm going to rely on a Japanese phrase for a second because I know it exists in Korean. I just don't know what the word is, but umami. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything you do, like the umami is such a delight. And I don't know how to really describe umami except for it's like a fifth sort of flavor is the best way to describe it. It's like this thing that you know it when you taste it. Yeah. Can explain right. it. Um, it describes deliciousness, mm-hmm. um, which is different from saltiness. Saltiness can like salt can accentu- accentuate it, but 
I describe it as savoriness, really. And in Korean, there is a word for it. It's it's not as like fashionable or in the vernacular mm. in English as umami is, but kamchilma yep. just means kamchilma. I actually thought, you know, the word was kamchunma because my mom would her test for whether a recipe was you know worth passing and being in the book was whether or not it had this savoriness. And I thought she said kamchunma, which Kind of doesn't make sense anyway, because that, that actually means like, I think it means like shrouded or hidden mm-hmm. taste, but I thought it was referring to like, you know, something that grabs your tongue. And um, so I was like going off on interviews saying, oh yeah, kamchunmat, which is like the Korean word for umami. And then um, halfway I realized it was kamchunmat, which refers to savoriness. Anyway, I think it's like an important feature of Korean cuisine for sure. Mm-hmm. And I wrote about it in the Times. Seaweed is something that really lends that kind of savoriness. But I don't know about you, but I really like the kind of umami that is quieter and kind of soft. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. You can eat a lot of it because, you know, there's only so much of like a miso glazed tomato mushroom like pasta that you can take. It's like right. those are such strong flavors. But um, I like to use like a tomato in a soup and it mm-hmm. adds this unexpected umami that's I'm really into tomatoes right now, obviously, because it's tomato season. But I, I just got back from Italy as well. And. Wow, what a powerful ingredient. And when you have something that's ripe, mm. genuinely ripe, and, yeah, so you know, I mean, I have a farmer's market right across the block from yeah. my office, so I'm incredibly fortunate in a lot of ways, but when you taste something that is genuinely ripe and tastes the way it's supposed to in season, you can't compete with that. Yeah. There's just, there's nothing at all to compare with that. It's true. I really um, like what you mm-hmm. said about I like what you said about the egg salad because what you did with that. Um, so basically, there's a deviled egg recipe mm-hmm. in my book, and Mila did it an egg salad that was flavored with that, which makes a lot of sense because I I want people to learn things from the book. It's mm-hmm. I think it's supposed to give people ideas. Like there's a gochujang butter that I based um, a ribeye with, but I want people to taste that and be like, whoa, that could be a pork chop. That could be um, a piece of salmon it could be um i think what's important about cooking is uh taking those lessons and applying them elsewhere because even though the model is you know the what the way the recipe writer wrote it if you know that sesame oil and soy sauce and seaweed taste great together then you can apply that to all these other things like tuna mayo mm-hmm. like, that's like a rice bowl that i put out recently that's like really popular and um it's really just i just replaced the egg with tuna because that's how i season my food sometimes i'm like i want that taste you know the nutty savory taste i don't really follow recipes as they're written i mean obviously when we were doing that other thing <laughs> we were cooking directly from the book for lots of different reasons but even then i uh, i you know i i tweak yeah. i play because part of it is sort of tasting as you go yeah, yeah kind of thing and it's not i'm just also not great at following directions it's why i don't bake actually um my partner bakes because he's very precise and he likes all of the, you know, things you have to think about. And I'm kind of like, yeah. no, I just, I want a thing. Yeah. Which brings me to this idea of cooking from taste memory, which is something that you bring up early yeah. in Korean American. And I think, you know, certainly for me during lockdown, I was doing a lot of that. I was deconstructing meals that I'd had yeah. at restaurants that were closed. And I was just thinking about flavors that I wanted to eat and sort of just making it up as I went along. I wasn't even necessarily looking. At a cookbook. So can we talk about your taste memory and, and how, because Korean American is not Korean. 
A Korean American is its own thing. So let's yeah. talk about your taste memories for a second. This book was very bizarre to write because I was a, you know, I was in my late twenties when I was writing it, but I was writing about my seventeen-year-old self, and I was also in that bedroom. But it, it helped me access these memories, and I, I do think the 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 book was an effort to document certain dishes from from my memory and from my parents' memories. And like, you know, what's really interesting about taste memory is it's not that you're trying to necessarily replicate the dish exactly as it was. I think you're actually just trying to replicate your memory of it because your memory is always going to be the platonic ideal of it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that tuna noodle casserole that you had when you're 12 probably tastes like crap now. <laughs> I mean, no offense, but I mean, it depends on like, you know, whose it was or whatever. But like, like, I don't think the point of the book was to honor like the way it exactly was. It was to honor it. The past reflected through like um, rose tinted glasses, you know, a little bit. And so I think that's, that's sort of the tone of the book and it helped with the writing, but it also just, um, it, it gave me an assignment. It was like, okay, how do I replicate that curry rice that I really enjoy making in New York by myself? And it's like, not your mom is like curry rice, you know, it's like, but then there are some dishes that are truly like mom's, like, you know, her stews and stuff like that. I don't know. Taste memory has always been important to me. It's um, something that I've written about the Proustian Madeline before. Uh, I mean, everyone mm -hmm uses that phrase in food writing, but I like wrote a whole column about that concept of being surprised by the mm -hmm. past. And um, I feel that a lot whenever I'm like boiling a chicken or something like that. But I think what's been really lovely about this book is a lot of other Korean Americans are seeing themselves in it and they're they're like accessing taste memories that they had forgotten about as well. Because one, one lovely thing is that we're all sort of connected um, and not just Korean Americans, but you know Asian Americans. And I mean, there are plenty of non-Asians who cook from this book and, are, you know, remember certain things about the past because I'm also American, you know. I think it's important to have a touchstone like this, though, because there are Korean American and especially like Korean barbecue is a thing that people think about a lot. And, you know, obviously I spend a lot of time in L.A. and yes, we have very good Korean barbecue there, but it's only one facet of the cuisine. So the idea like. <laughs> You have a moment in the book where you point out that vegetables are actually a very big part of Korean food. And I'm like, that is going to shock some people. While writing this book, I was also aware of like the role of representation. And mm -hmm. I, um, I think for me, I was just thinking about all of the Korean books out there. I don't know, just the, under the general understanding of Korean cuisine mm -hmm. didn't align like a meat heavy cuisine, right? It didn't align mm -hmm. with my daily home cooking with my parents mm -hmm. and my family. It's like, we actually don't eat that much meat at home. Um, that's why the feast section, it's sort of a euphemism for like the meat section. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> the feasts that where you're, you're shelling out for like carby and stuff like that. But for us, the everyday food was just um, a lot of potatoes, cucumbers, tomatoes, and stuff like that. I don't know. Lots of rice um, and fish, lots of fish. So I wanted to sort of um, make sure that came across. Like this is what happens in people's homes. And because it's, people's home food, people's home cooking that doesn't really get the airtime as much as restaurant food. So I, when it comes to like a cuisine like this, I, I really wanted to, and I'm also someone who's really nosy. I, the second I go into someone's house, I like looking at people's fridges. Like you betcha. I was like, every time I opened that fridge at our friend's house, when we were cooking there, I was like observing like, hmm, what kind of butter do they buy? And like, what kind of like ketchup do they use? And mayonnaise, people's mayonnaise preferences is very political not political but it's very like you know fraught 
<laughs> I keep two kinds of mayonnaise in my fridge. I have Japanese mayonnaise and I have Hellman's, honestly, because uh, I like Hellman's full fat. It's I like Hellman's. used when I was a kid. I like Hellman's too. And if I'm going to eat mayonnaise, I want mayonnaise. <laughs> <laughs> but your parents came to the States in what, 83? Early in the 80s. So yeah, early 80s. And they ended up in Atlanta. I mean, I've heard of people's parents ending up in New York or New Jersey or Los Angeles and areas around Los Angeles. But how did your parents end up in Atlanta? Yeah, the the story is actually that my uncle Young, he mm -hmm. first came to the United States and he lived in New York for a few years. But then mm -hmm. when it was time for all the other cousins to come over, um, it was sort of his job, I think, to pick a city. And he picked New York, North Carolina, because that was sort of like, um, he thought, I think he thought it would be like a peaceful place to live, which he was correct. It's a great childhood. But uh, my, the way my dad tells the story is he decided on Atlanta as well because of a Julia Roberts movie. I, I can't tell which one, but mm -hmm. Julia Roberts is from Atlanta. And okay. uh, I always like took great pride in that because I love her. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, he, he moved here first and then um, later brought over my mother, maybe a year or two later. Um, mm -hmm. So he, he came over first to sort of like, you know, make some money and have like a decent place where she could live and mm -hmm. have stuff. But um, I think one thing that I really you know, appreciate about this book is that part of my job was also to tell the story of Atlanta Koreans. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's a reason there were so many Koreans in Atlanta. It was it was a hub for a lot of people. I, I once read that it was because of the L.A. riots, like a lot of people in the 80s. Mm -hmm. Uh, they had to move, so they moved over to um, the other hub, which is Atlanta. And it's not New York. It's like a little like chiller and quieter. When you recognize that you're actually just not that special, you're like <laughs> not part, you're part of a, um, I don't want to call it a wave, but you're part of a pattern. And I realized that what a Korea town I was living in that I grew up in was pretty cool. Um, I just really took it for granted. I've always integrated spaces that I've lived in for very, I grew up in the Northeast and <laughs> there were not a lot of any of us, whether we were Korean American, Chinese American or, or Japanese American, like there just weren't a lot of us. And I remember my grandmother would send us nori, which mm. is it Jim? How do you pronounce Korean? Yeah, Jim. Jim? Kim. Okay. Oh, Kim. Okay. So nori is the Japanese equivalent. And my grandmother would ship us these giant cases of it from Japan because we couldn't find you. I mean, sure, we could fly to Los Angeles and go to a Japanese grocery store. But when you're living in a suburb of Boston, you're totally dependent on grandma. Yes. Totally dependent on grandma for all of the delicious things. And, yeah. you know, she'd send dried scallops, all of these things we just couldn't get. And I remember coming home from college in sort of the 90s and, and there was not great grocery store sushi at yeah. the A&P. And I was so excited. My mother's like, you know, it's not very good. I'm like, I don't care. We're just buying this on principle. We're eating mediocre sushi from yeah. the A&P on the South Shore of Massachusetts because we can't. Yeah. You know, that. and I still kind of have a fondness for not great grocery store sushi, which Me doesn't too. say much about my palate, but. I used to live on the West Side and there was like a Gristides or one of those like, you know, mm -hmm. stores. And it was definitely like grocery store sushi where there was like so much rice and it, the rice was overcooked and it was like only avocado and crab, but like kind of like simple. And I was like, it, it almost felt homemade because it was so poorly made. And that's why I liked it. It was very comforting. And I would get one of those with like a bag of chips. And that was my lunch for like all through college. Mm -hmm. It was like what I ate because it was wow. just 
so light and easy. And Going back to taste memory and things like that, like during lockdown, really all I wanted to eat was Japanese. And I was a reverse engineering mm. a lot of Japanese mm. stews because the same thing in the, in the U.S., a lot of people think, oh, Japanese, it's got to be sushi. And I'm like, well, no, actually, right. there are a lot of things you can do. But I started making a lot of kimchi fried rice at home as well, which meant there was spam in the house. And my partner would open the pantry and say, there's spam. I'm confused. And he's not Asian American, and that probably has a little bit to do with it. But we need to talk about spam for a second, because people have wildly polarizing opinions of spam. Part of spam's history in Korea, obviously, involves the American military and the Korean War. And I want to bring your grandparents into this conversation for a second, because we can't separate our family stories from our food. Yeah, spam was, it plays an interesting role in our lives. Mm -hmm. Like, as kids growing up in Georgia... I distinctly remember it in my kimchi jjigae. And I remember eating that specifically after long days at the pool. And I don't know if you remember, like as a kid, like when you're in a swimming pool, like that kind of hunger after swimming in a swimming pool, it was so like, it was like a, a raging hunger that I've never felt before. But it's like, I don't know how, to, I think it's because you're just burning so many calories, but um, but you're having fun. So you don't, you can't tell that you're getting hungry. Mm -hmm. So the meal after is just amazing. So that I just always remember like the white rice with the spam and, you know, eventually as I got older, I started eating the kimchi and the stew, but like, even now I barely eat the kimchi. It's like actually about the broth and like the, the spam, but, um, yeah, that, that, so for me, that was like comfort food. And then as I got older, my white friends thought it was gross. You know, they were mm -hmm. like weird that you eat spam. I didn't know that that was, and then, you know, you grow up kind of being ashamed of your food. And I think it took, honestly, it took, maybe two or three years ago for me to finally write, write about it. Mm -hmm. I just joke that it's my lunchbox story. Everyone, every Asian food writer has, has to write one lunchbox story. And it's like mm -hmm. a joke that has become almost cheesy now and wrote, but um, I, I wrote about spam because I, I noticed this disjunction uh, between Asians and non-Asians who don't grow up with it. And the difference in perception of spam can be explained through the history. So yeah, it was it was just a really nice opportunity to talk to, you know, some really talented Chinese chefs, a uh, Filipino food writer. Um, I have like, you know, of course, other cranes in the piece, but I it's it's really the war. And a lot of uh, Asian countries have spam because of the connections from um, wars in their countries. And and it was like um, a military ration. And so in my family story, you can kind of pinpoint it to my grandmother. Um, like one story is that I heard that she had to get married quickly to her first husband before, um, so that she wouldn't become a comfort woman for the, for the Japanese army. It was like, a, she, that was like the pressure. It was like, those were the two options she had. Right. And then, um, so I think that's crazy, but she's someone who's interesting because, you know, I, I only got to know her for maybe a couple decades. Like she, she, she died when I was in high school, but she did live with us sometimes and when she did anytime i put on a pot of like ramen um she was always excited to eat that and i would put spam in it sometimes and she liked the spam a lot and um but that i noticed that that was different from other um koreans from that generation who associate spam and food like that as like a negative thing because it, it reminds them of mm -hmm. the traumas of the war and i thought i always thought that was really fascinating because younger generations love spam and 
um, it's like given as a gift, you know, um, like big packages are super expensive. Um, and I, it's like, um, I think the, the cultural differences between the perception of spam are really political. And even to this day, I'll publish mm-hmm. like the recipe on the New York times. And it's always some white person who's like, Oh, spam. That's like low quality food. I'm not going to make this recipe. And then of course people start to defend me because they're like, did you not hear him talk about the history of that and all that anyway it doesn't matter how much you give people they're going to have their own perceptions about what a dish is and i just think it's important not to yuck other people's yums because you don't know the history there i mean i had kentucky fried chicken for the first time in tokyo when i was a kid like we didn't Ooh, eat was it in the state. it was amazing and can <laughs> yeah, i tell you i have a jolly bee down the street from me in Ooh. los angeles and you better believe i ate that fried chicken oh, man, I've never it's so good but also, I thought okra was Japanese. Like, we didn't eat oh, cool. okra at home mm. in Massachusetts. Like, it was part of Japanese breakfast when my grandmother cooked for us. And I love Japanese breakfast. I love yeah, Taiwanese well. breakfast. I love Japanese breakfast. I love yeah. Asian hotel breakfast in general, mm. where you can just eat your way through the world. But I had no idea that, and a friend of mine in high school actually looked at me and said, that's Flannery O'Connor food. What is wrong with you? And I'm like, mm. eat it here. I think of things as, you know, White peaches, like nothing matches. And I know you're from Georgia, which is why I'm bringing it up. But like nothing matches like one of those giant white peaches that you get as a gift Mm. in Japan because the flavor is perfect. And I've been chasing that my entire life. (laughs) I've been chasing that perfect peach. And again, like, you know how it is. You're you're always looking for that taste memory. And then when you when you find it, it's really it's really nice. But so many bad peaches out in the world. Actually, just to be controversial, I would mm-hmm. say the best peaches are are in the Carolinas. <laughs> I actually don't think Georgia peaches are that good, but that's just my thought. I, I always thought that was ironic. I like never understood that. Um, even like Jersey peaches are like pretty good. <laughs> okay, so I have another question for you though, because I didn't know that American cheese could be a thing in ramen until Roy Choi oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. turned me on to that idea. Not personally, obviously, I'm just a huge fan of his work. I keep shin ramen in my pantry, right? Like this is one of the things that is always, I always have white miso with bonito. I always have, you know, what else? Yeah, um, I just, I saw something on like TikTok or one Mm -hmm. of the dumb like social media platforms. Um, I think you should try this. I I need to, I don't have a bag of shin ramen in my pantry because I always eat it like right away. So it's Yeah, no, I know. (laughs) Never like keep it. But um, you take the dry packet and Mm -hmm. put it in a heat proof bowl and then you pour hot oil over it. Kind of like you're making like a Chinese style like noodle. It's sort of like you're making your own chili oil with the, the seasoning packet. Cool. I just think that sounds really good. And then you toss the noodles in that mm-hmm. and it's like a dry noodle dish instead of the, I bet it's super salty, but I bet it's like really good. Um, oh. And I really want to try that. <laughs> so you should do that if you do have, if you really do have it in your There pantry. is actually shin ramen in the right, pantry right now. I might have to do it tonight. Let me know what you think. There are certain things where I'm like, if I don't have it in the pantry, mm, you know, the way some people look at preserved lemons and I'm like, I have to have this in my kitchen all at all times. It's very seasonal. Not in the way that it makes sense, but um, like right now, summer stuff, I, I really like, I think because the food is also light, I'm really leaning into mayonnaise right now. <laughs> so I just always have like a backup jar of Hellman's in my fridge just in case I run out of the, the first one. And what I like to do is I, I stir in some... Um, apricot preserves um, or peach preserves and chili powder it sounds weird but like these three things are my like 
go-tos right now. And mm-hmm. it kind of sounds like high food and maybe it kind of is sometimes, but it's like, I think there's something that I'm really having fun with right now with the rich, yolky, creamy mayonnaise, plus something fruity that also thickens whatever you add it to, which is the apricot mm-hmm. preserves. And they're actually quite savory if you like add soy sauce and garlic powder. Anyway, chili powder and chili powder as in like the powder you use to make chili, the dish chili. I think um, it's like a nice blend of, it's like cumin and paprika and all this stuff. And I those flavors just remind me of like a shopping mall tra- chain restaurant salad, you know? So I, I like, I use it to dip like my French fries. I use it to marinate chicken. It's like really weird. I'm like in this weird mayo, apricot, jam, chili powder phase. Um, but yeah, ordinarily there's like all this, there's always American cheese. There's always um, sesame oil. Um, I have multiple vinegars all the time. Mm-hmm. You can kind of tell by my recipes. Um, if you look at them in order, like what vinegar I didn't run out of that week. And that's the <laughs> recipe. It's like, oh my God, Eric Kim added sherry vinegar to this. And it's like, it's because I ran out of rice vinegar and white vinegar. And Anyway, so uh, I, I think I'm, it's fun to experiment with vinegars, but um, that's why I like to have a lot of them at a time because they're all, they're all so different, mm-hmm. all so different uh, sharpnesses. And anyway, yeah, I, I keep my pantry pretty, pretty stocked, but it's also quite discerning. Like I mm-hmm. have obsessions and which is helpful because then, you know, I, I use up the bottle instead of wasting anything. Yeah. What's your latest obsession beyond the mayonnaise? Apricot, preserved um, chili. Oh, um, togarashi, actually. Did I say that right? Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, I'm really having fun with chili peppers, like just different chili powders. And that one is something that I just associate with udon. Uh, udon, yeah, yeah. it's like my mom always, like tempura udon, she would put it, she would like sprinkle it over or nabe or whatever. But um, it, it, it would always just remind me of that. And so I thought I started just like adding it to everything now because I'm mm-hmm. just, hmm. Sometimes it gets masked though. It's kind of a gentle chili, so it's really easy for it to get lost. It's really, really. I mean, I, I like a good Taiwanese chili oil. I know those. Those are wonderfully hardcore, and it's just kind of like, all right. Um, I'm trying to re- uh, reconstruct a salad that I loved from a Taiwanese restaurant that went out of. They're doing something else now, mm. and it's thousand year egg, and it's. Um, pork floss and scallions and chili oil and soft tofu. And I'm just like, okay, okay I think I can do it. But it's also a matter of the measurements. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if you go too far in one direction. So you've been developing recipes for a really long time. And <laughs> you were thinking you were going to be an English professor, which I love. Because obviously, the care you take in your writing, it shows. But I want to talk about recipe development for a second. Because like I said, I'm a pantser. I don't I don't really follow recipes. I'll read them to figure out if there's something I want to steal, basically. From you a call recipe. yourself a pantser? I did. I stole that from a writer <laughs> <I> interviewed. <laughs> it's a really great line. I was like, yeah, I kind of do that. I just, I really kind of do that when I'm cooking. <laughs> I really, I like, I like the prep. I like the the chopping and and all of that kind of thing, and you know, doing whatever the onions <laughs> need to do, and then I'm just kind of like. Let's see. I'm I'm a big one for I don't know. It's a couple of glurgs. I wing. Yeah, yeah I wing I, it a I'm lot when I'm following people. Totally first. one of not those. When I, not when I'm like testing officially or something. But um, okay. yeah. I okay. I had the best day yesterday. I was just cooking all day. I made kimchi from like six in the morning till like six at night. And um, and I went to meet a friend for drinks. But 
even though it was like a 12 hour workday, it just, it felt really leisurely. And there's mm-hmm. just, there's this creative space that your brain goes into and it's so joyful. It's like, you know, and it's, it's important that I get to do that in between my writing because it's, you switch, there are different parts of the brain. I think of it as different parts of the brain and it's just nice to be on your feet once in a while. And, um, I met up with a, a friend, uh, from my food two years and, you know, I was an editor there, but she was like, she was like the unofficial like recipe developer. I was like, mm-hmm. her. so we talked about how these kinds of jobs have made us better cooks. And we were kind of joking about how we, we don't know if we got better because we were just doing it all the time or if it's because or or if we were always OK at it and we were just like posturing until people started trusting us. I think it's a little bit of both, but um. It's a little like imposter syndrome. Um, but I, I really am grateful that this job has me cooking like this so rigorously because I've just gotten better at everything. Like even my knife work, like when I made Christmas dinner last year, I did it in like two hours and it was like this multi-course kind of like big, mm-hmm. hand, big everything. And I was like, that was so fun and also kind of easy. And I remember feeling so like, wow, like when you can see the extent of your skill, like getting better yeah really satisfying so that's really exciting because you know it's my job but I I also feel like I'm kind of going to culinary school because I never got to go to that and (laughs) but I'm just doing it on like the New York Times this time but um it's really nice yeah (laughs) yeah but they're getting quite a lot in return (laughs) (laughs) I don't think anyone's complaining but also (laughs) when you can get the timing right and everything is done exactly when it needs to be and nothing's freezing cold or nothing's overcooked that is part, and I didn't understand that until I got older. And I was, you're I mean, good at it too. You're, thank yeah. you very much. But there were a couple of New Year's Eve dinners that I did with my mother years ago, where we did literally thirty course meals, and uh, fifteen and forty, depending. I mean, because we would just cook yeah. too much anyway. Because yeah. one of my family's things is cooking before the New Year hits. The Japanese New, you know, Japanese New Year is January first, but then you don't cook for like three days after it. So we would just do all of this cooking. So we, except we were doing things like, you know, Chinese noodles here. And it was kind of a hodgepodge. The one rule my mother had though was nothing with a face on it because I had American aunts and uncles of a certain age who were not going to handle that well. And she's like, we can't have faces on things. And I was like, I want to do a whole fish. (laughs) Like, no, (laughs) we have aunties and uncles who will just not be okay with it. So it was it was this weird sort of hybrid of but there was always a little bit of 1957 in the room with the shrimp toast because I mean I love shrimp toast. But. Yeah, it's great. I, I used to do one with like uh, shiitake mushrooms, yeah, and scallions, and then mm-hmm. just like a nice and you barely cook the shrimp, but you chop it up finely and then you just like mound it on toast. It's like really nice. But then there would be years too where we just do hot pot with like. 9,000 kinds of fish and scallops and everything else. And yeah. people could just sort of wander in and out of the kitchen and, you know, that. take care of themselves as they, as they felt like it. And honestly, hot pot was always easier, but the amount of chopping that we did going into it. Yeah. I love that. was not small. Right. <laughs> I think my family's holiday dinners were always traditional, to be honest. Like, mm-hmm. I, cause we don't eat that food ordinarily. So I want those creamy scalloped potatoes. I want that ham. My family expects a ham every year. We mm-hmm. never eat turkey, um, so we do it for Thanksgiving. It's just like, I think um, our participation in the tradition, I don't know that it was ever because like we felt that it was our tradition, but it, but that we wanted to eat it because it mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. 
such a, you know, we never allow yourself that kind of indulgence otherwise. But um, I, I was going to say that I love that you make a big dinner for New Year's Eve because that's the one time we don't do that. But mm-hmm. what I do like to do is maybe just with my my cousin, Becky, or like with like one other person or someone you want to just like hang out with and you mm-hmm. get, um, I just make a bunch of appetizers. And that's where the nori, that's where the, yep. the seaweed deviled eggs came in because mm-hmm. I was like, I want to make a crap ton of small bites and make a meal out of it and um and because that kind of food is really fun to eat and so i make like little sausage rolls which is when you get like just pillsbury biscuit dough and then mm-hmm. you fill it with sausage breakfast sausage and like maple syrup and i do cheese as well and i roll it up it's really good i should pitch that actually it's a it's a good it's like it's my go-to and everyone eats it and they're like whoa what is this i'm like i don't know and i actually look enough my friend and kind of like a pocket and so it's sort of like all just like food like that, that you just really want to eat a lot of. No, I get it. I totally get it. Great for that. Cast iron. We got to talk about cast iron for a second. <laughs> I think your first purchase from your first big job mm-hmm. was a Dutch oven. And I'm going to assume that it was a cast iron Dutch oven because I oh, love cooking in yeah. cast iron. I love cast iron so much. Oh, it's sad. It it was actually an, an enameled um, yellow kind of like Dutch oven for... Mm-hmm sort of like french braises and stuff but i used it for everything yep. it was my biggest pot for a whole decade and just last month uh it was on my stove and i heard popping and i was like whoa what's that and i oh. enamel finally after t- 10 years started like coming off mm-hmm. i think it was a good run I'm, I'm too sentimental to throw it out but it's so huge and taking up space and it's just sad because it's like i even named it its name was alfred and it's kind of like dead now so which is wild and i I don't know. I think people are like, it's supposed to last a lifetime, but you know, I was a poor college student. It was definitely the cheapest Dutch oven I could Mm -hmm. buy with my paycheck, which was like very little as like an intern or whatever I was doing. Thanks for giving me this space to grieve, Alfred. (laughs) Yeah, but cast iron also taught me to slow down when I was cooking because you can't really like High heat and cast iron, eh, you know, there's some stuff where you can get away with it. But it's much better if you just put something on low heat and let it go. And then you get a really delicious thing at the end of it. So, I mean, that's really, that's my love of cast iron. But um, rice cooker, yes or no? Do you have an electric rice cooker? Uh, I love rice cookers. I actually, um, people are always like, what kind of rice cooker do you have? And I was like, I don't want to endorse anything. But my my whole thing with rice cookers is actually, I have a really crappy, like $20 one. And I Mm -hmm. love it because it's a simple machine. You know what it does. It's not the best rice, but it's like fine. And it's really fast. It's like, I'll have rice in like 15 minutes versus a nicer one that's going to let it like steam and do all this crap. And like, you know, but I do like making it on the stove as well. But rice cookers are just wonderful. I think everyone should have one. If But I also understand people for people for whom it doesn't seem like a good purchase because I'm sure you grew up like this too. But rice is just, it's always there. It will fill out a meal, any meal. Um Actually, it, it sort of became a point of everything becomes a point of politics for me. But I, I would write these recipes early in my career. And, you know, I'd be shy about doing another recipe that said serve with white rice because I'd be like, they're supposed to be a little different. But I'm like, white people get to publish recipes with serve with crusty bread all the time. So, like, why not? And and then uh, my, my board friend is um, he's like a lot of things, but he's like Italian and German and he he eats a lot of bread and I mm-hmm. like living with him is interesting when I 
I watch how much bread he eats and it's like, he eats it like I eat rice. And that makes sense for like a lot of cultural reasons. And it's like, everyone has like their carbohydrate of choice. So it's like, what if I just keep, what if my recipes always just say serve with white rice? Cause that's like my go-to. And I stopped being ashamed of it. And I like, I think a lot of things taste better with white rice, <laughs> not brown rice. No, no, what's the Korean equivalent of gohan, which is the rice porridge? Uh, oh, gohan. Um, kerenbap? Oh, okay. is gohan? No, you're not talking about tamago gohan. Right? No, no, no. Gohan Gohan is just basically day-old rice, and you just cook it in a lot of water, but it is one of my favorite things to eat. It's, oh, it's so, so good. Oh, cool. And it's just, yeah. I mean, gohan is all about the things that you add to it. So like yeah. gohan and pickles or gohan and pork floss, There, there's so many things that but there's something about just this clean, crisp flavor. Yes. About rice that's been boiled in water for like for yeah, a while. So and it's so good. It's just or, you know, even like salted peanuts <laughs> and gohan is, Ooh, is cool. I like that. I've turned my crisper drawer in my refrigerator in New York. It's pickle central. Oh, so it's yeah. literally full of like any kind of pickle you can imagine. And and I know that comes from eating Japanese pickles when I was tiny. And mm-hmm. Japanese have, pickles are so good and so different. Yeah, and I have to admit, like, the grosser the color, like, the more fluorescent the dye is, the more satisfying the pickle is. <laughs> I, I, agree some... I agree. You should look at uh, <laughs> It's on the back of the book, actually, but this is mm-hmm. a key that you use beetroot to dye it. Yeah. And, you know, I like when the dye is there for a reason. It's like, yep. it gives it an earthy flavor. It's nice. I still haven't gotten to the cheeseburger kimbap. I will get there. I mean, I've been talking about how I put American cheese in my ramen, so I will get there. But I want to talk about radishes for a second because, you know, a good radish, you can do a lot with a good radish. And again, this comes back to the idea that there are plenty of people who think Korean food is really all about the bulgogi and the kalbi, and which is great. Don't misunderstand me, but you do a lot with vegetables. And this is part of where your mom comes in because your mom has a crazy huge garden and you were working on these recipes with her, even if they were hers, you're still tweaking them because you can't exactly replicate what mom, you can't say in the pages of the New York Times, go for three glergs and you'll be fine. (laughs) They're not going to take that. You have to really tweak this stuff. So what was it like working with your mom when you can't actually just head out the door when you want to, because we were in lockdown? You know, we actually did get along okay. If anything, she was annoyed at me. I was like Mm -hmm. really messy and you know, I, it was a time in my career too, when I was just like, I've never, I'd never been busier. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, which is really lovely because you have family kind of helping you with dishes and uh, grocery runs and just tasting. It was really important to have my mom there to taste my food. And, you know, it was nice to just get her honest feedback. Like she had no reason to, you know, mm-hmm sugarcoat anything she's not that type of person so when she says something tastes bad you really know she, she means it and you have to rethink it and um so it, honestly it was just such a lovely thing to have her around because anyone who do, does this for work knows how lonely it can be it's just mm-hmm. such and you're in your head all the time and after you've tasted um you know a mango salad like five thousand times it's hard to tell after a while like your all the acid is like shot your tongue and you're just like i can't even tell anymore and you know, the differences between the dishes are like, should I add this or this or this much of this or this much of that? And those nuances are hard to taste when you do it alone. So, so you know, there were moments when I felt frustrated because it, it really did feel, I think a lot of people feel this way, felt this way during the pandemic and maybe still do, but I, I felt like I had just reverted and my role was back to being not just her son, not just her son, but like also 
a 17-year-old son. And so there were moments where I had to remind her, I'm an adult now, I'm 18. And then it's like, I'm an adult now, mom. I'm like 24. And then I'm an adult now, mom. I'm 27. And then there's a point where I was like, I think I'm like an adult now. I'm like 30. So I think, I think I'm actually an adult. I think um, part of that is, it's really exciting. It's, it's, it's a social contract. You and your mom have to like kind of rear, you have to change your perception of each other. You have to, the rules have to change because I'm no longer just her son. It's like, um, when we're working on this book, for instance, like I'm someone a lot of people look to for, to, you know, with, for authority on cooking and, um, and she does too. She always has. It's bizarre to change a relationship with someone who's that important to you. It's it's very, it's really rewarding too. It's good. Yeah, we got a really cool thing out of your working with your mom. Like, let's be really clear. Like, we benefit in many many ways from that. But how do you how do you reboot your taste buds after you've shot? Them? I mean, that was always something I wondered about for food writers in general. It's like. Don't you ever hit a point where you're just like, I cannot eat that again. I just oh. I can't eat that again. Like, what do you do? Yeah, I um, you just have to step away. I um, and you have to have like friends and neighbors around to eat all the food. But I, I was developing these chicken breast recipes mm-hmm. for a New York Times story last year, and um, I couldn't eat a chicken breast for like a year. Um, <laughs> actually, I I recently cooked a chicken breast uh, and. It was one of the best chicken dishes I've ever had. I was, I was, it's for like an upcoming column. And mm-hmm. uh, I just thought it was funny that it took me like a year to get over it. Um, so yeah, it, you have your phases. And also, I don't know, I've, I'm really grateful for my job because, you know, they, they always tell me, you know, sometimes you're gonna have to do, you know, stuff that you don't want to do, but I always want to do what they want me, like what they asked me to do. It's mm-hmm. like, do you want to develop an affogato like column? And I'll be like, yeah, that sounds fun. It's like, what is the science behind an affogato? And like, mm-hmm. um, so I don't know what they're talking about, but I, I have a, I have a good time when I'm thrown um, different assignments because they help me to explore different parts of like uh, taste. And I, so you know, I'm not necessarily gonna always be doing like a braise after braise after braise meat. You know, it's gonna be it's gonna be very diverse, and I, I that's what I like about my job. And so it's hard to get tired of foods because you just cycle through them so so i cycle through so many different foods so it keeps it interesting i think and like i said we really benefit so please keep doing it but there was one thing that i picked up on in korean american that had never occurred to me before and i we have to talk about this for a second dried seaweed brittle Oh, tried seaweed. Have you actually done this? I I did do that. You said because you're you were talking about and seaweed. I mean, there's so many different kinds of seaweed. I love seaweed. I just snacking on dried seaweed makes me very very happy. Seaweed brittle. I'm making a. um, I'm making a face. I was like, "What are you talking about?" I was like, "Oh, you're right." Um, I cut a recipe. There was a recipe for savory oats, which were cooked in like a Mm -hmm. you know seaweed dashi, and then um, the the topping is this maple candied nut brittle that has like 20 grams of seaweed and what happens is it's like they're like little nut clusters of like candied maple oh okay so the seaweed just sort of pops in okay that i okay when you explain it like that i understand but i was like it was also based off of the korean panchan that already exists it's mostly you mostly buy it at the store it's called kim chaban so it's Mm -hmm. i don't know what chaban means maybe it means candied or something but Mm. they're little clusters of of that keem, that salted sesame oil, like seaweed. And it's just a, it's like a cluster of like crunchy, savory goodness. And 
Um, maple syrup's a great, you know, sweetener because when it when that heats up, it gets hard. And um, so yeah, I um, I think it's a good idea. It's just kind of complicated, and you have to work fast. And I, I worked hard to like perfect it, but I just didn't see anyone really making it. But it's like a, it, you know, it's in the it's in the crisper drawer, as you say. And I, what I mean by that is everything in my crisper drawer dies. It like goes there to die, basically, because you know, <laughs> it's, I'm never gonna see it again. That the apple that went into the back of the crisper drawer, I'm never gonna see it again. It's gonna disappear into like seeds. That's why the pickles live there now. Yeah, yeah. That's smart. why all of the pickles yeah. <laughs> in all of the pickle packaging live in the crisper drawer now because. I mean, you have to get a little creative in a New York apartment because otherwise it just gets chaotic. <laughs> uh, actually, that's why I've been really obsessed with kimchi lately. Um, mm -hmm. and I, it's really fun to um, kimchi anything because you're just, oh, those those vegetables are going bad. I'm going to like salt them and then put, this, put a sauce on them and then ferment them. And it's like, I feel like my mom a little bit. She's sort of like, what do I do with this? Okay, I'm just going to kimchi it. And it makes sense. It's like, you're extending the life of it, but it's also really satisfying. It's it's a form of fridge rating. It's a form of fridge like cleanup. I, I you know, because like it's very satisfying if you've ever made kimchi, your counter will be filled with produce like this, and then you end up with a tiny jar this big. And it's like really satisfying. And then you can use it for kimchi fried rice, which is one of the best yeah. things you can eat. Yeah. Hey, speaking of eating, what's for dinner tonight? I've been craving Indian food, which I love cooking, but I I haven't had Indian takeout in months so and I, I think i have like a free day but i don't know i have like i actually have a kimchi shiga on the stove right now i'm developing a recipe um i'll probably have that for lunch and um but i i'm excited to just like chill out and enjoy my friday it's been a long a long but um productive week and this is a nice way to way to end it we have to like uh, hang out in person though soon we do we do and that's a whole nother conversation eric kim thank you so much korean american is out now Hello, readers, and welcome to another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books for you to pick up when you come in for your copy of Korean American by Eric Kim. I'm Becky. And I'm Mark. <laughs> and we're coming to you from our store in Westchester, Ohio. And uh, we have several, actually, well, three books uh, to share with you today. And so I'm going to let Mark get started with the first one. Fantastic. Hi, everybody. So I, first of all, uh, want to express some excitement about Eric Kim. He is incredibly cool uh and the way he talks about food and watching him create food is spellbinding he's just freaking cool um so that aside i'm going to talk about a couple of books um the first one that i want to mention is free food for millionaires by min jin lee you may know this author from a little phenomenon called pachinko uh but this is her debut novel, and it is stellar. Uh, you follow um, Casey, who is a character that you want to scream at, but you can't stop reading about her hijinks. She is a product of a, a Korean-American family, uh, and all she wants is everything. She wants wealth. She wants clothing she wants love in the exact specifications that she has <laughs> she wants spiritual enlightenment so she's looking for all of it she wants the divinity she wants the dresses she wants all of the material wealth and she is bound determined to get it 
This, however, is not always successful. And a number of failed relationships and a mounting credit card debt are lying in the wake of her pursuits. Uh, but she is bound determined to keep going and getting the things that she wants. Most importantly, independence. Um, you know, she comes from a very specific family life that she just wants to break away from, but also wants to incorporate that into her her day to day. So she's a very complicated person, and I just love reading her. Um, it's it's a quarter life crisis kind of story. Uh, but the way that it connects to uh, culture, to family dynamics, um, to um, race and class, and the immigrant experience is just incredibly special. I am just dumbfounded that this is a debut novel because it's really written with a very sure hand. Um, no surprise because Min Jin Lee is incredible. Uh, but please, 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 please pick up Free Food for Millionaires. It's wonderful. Becky, do you have one for us? I do. Um, so I decided to go in um, the YA route. Oh, uh, and I found this incredible teen book that I think everybody needs to read. It's called I'll Be the One by Lila Lee. Oh, cute. This is, oh my gosh, it is the sweetest book. It's just such, it's a warm hug of a book, kind of a, a oh. of an experience, because it tells the story of Sky Shin. And she has dreams of being a K-pop sensation. And she's going to make those dreams come true because there's actually a competition televised that is happening that she is going out for. And she actually nails that audition. So she is now thrown into the spotlight and she's about to make her dreams come true. Mm. Except there are a couple of things that are working against her. One is that she is not the cookie cutter size two that a lot of her competition is. She is plus size. And she is happy to be that size. She's very happy and confident in her skin and just one of the reasons that you will love her. Uh, but uh, she has a lot of naysayers, one of them being her mother, uh, who just are not in, in her corner and uh, not supporting her. But she doesn't care. She really, she treats every, every negative comment that comes her way. She's just like, fine, one more person I'm going to prove wrong. And so you will just love cheering for her. Uh, this is a rom-com also. So there's that little bit of romance. Um, what is really cool, though, about this book is just while it is celebrating body, uh, body positivity and, um, and confidence in yourself, it also celebrates um, just your sexuality, whatever it is, both Sky and the um, love interest that she finds. They are both bi. Uh, and it's, again, just dealt with like, this is fine. There is, um, unfortunately, there are some characters that are homophobic, but those, again, are dealt with. And um, and it's just, again, this book, oh, I love it so much. So I just really, I want everyone to read it. It's a quick read because it is teen, but you're going to love it. Um, so again, I'll Be the One by, um, by Lila Lee. Oh, nice pick. <laughs> that you. one's so, so, so cute. Uh, so I do have one more that I truly, truly need to talk about um, because I love it so much. Um, it was featured on a previous episode of Poured Over. So if you have not listened to this episode, jump back in and and take a listen because the book I'm going to talk about is Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zauner. 
Dear God, I love this book. Um, so I bought this immediately because I am a big fan of Japanese Breakfast, the band that she heads. Um, the album Jubilee is on all, near permanent repeat, especially right now, because I bought it when it first came out, sat on it for a while, got inundated with fiction and, and all kinds of other books. And then when we started talking about um, Eric Kim's episode, I couldn't not dive into this. And I'm so happy that I did because it is truly magnificent. Um, Michelle Zahner uh, is a great writer and this book follows her um, life from childhood where she grew up um, in a pretty isolated, very white community in Oregon uh, with um, a mother who has very, very specific expectations. I think about the mother in I'll Be the One Mm -hmm. who really has uh, beauty standards at the forefront and as a representation of success and doing well. And uh, Zauner just was not that kind of a girl. And she really pressed hard against the expectations that her mother set out, so much so that she moved across the country for college to pursue an education, to pursue her art uh, and music and a new identity. And She is doing pretty well with this until she gets the news that her mother is diagnosed with terminal cancer. And she she rushes back home uh, and tries to insert herself back into the family dynamic in ways that she walked away from, but really wants to reclaim um, to varying degrees of success. Um, The connection with her mother when she was very young was extremely tight. It grew apart when she was a teenager. And now that she is facing her mother's death, she really is trying to take stock of what her cultural attachment means and what her attachment to her mother means and how she can knit that back together. And one of the ways she does this is through food. And uh, the way that she writes about food and the way that she writes about grief are both very intertwined. And I think that's so, so perfect um, because food is such a connector for memory. Um, And especially for a lot of um, Korean Americans and immigrant families, it's a way to connect with your past and connect with your tribe. Just going into an H Mart, which if you don't know, is a essentially an Asian supermarket that uh, the bottom level is all groceries. You can find all the ingredients that you wouldn't find at a Trader Joe's that you can make that specific type of dish that you can't really recreate with some alternatives. And the upper level is uh, a cafeteria, which is almost always housed by um, Asian patrons from all over the world who are using those dishes and those foods to remember their loved ones and uh, have just a taste of home. And this book is celebrating that in such a gorgeous, gorgeous way. Um, It is difficult to read and talk about this book without getting a little choked up. Um, Similarly, in the way that Michelle Zauner gets choked up going into an H Mart because it reminds her of her mother in in the best and worst ways. Um, It's a near perfect book. I think she's a genius. Uh, So please, please, Check out Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zahner. It is so wonderful. 
Oh my god. Oh, it's oh, so, so good. good. <laughs> uh, all right. All right, everybody. I think that's all we've got for that today. Is. So when you get a chance, please rate and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you for watching and listening. Um, I'm Becky. And I am Mark. You can check out our home store at BN Westchester. And you can check out and support Poured Over just at Barnes and Noble. Pretty mm-hmm. simple. Yeah. Thank you all so much. Have a wonderful day. Thanks. Bye. Happy reading. Bye. <laughs> Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.